Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here, as always, with James Whelan. How are you now, Paul? How are you, James? Uh, joining us from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. G'day, Ken. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. Looking forward to being in a bad Michael Keaton movie. Yes, <laughs> it certainly is going to be. It's going to be a strange one. Um, we're recording this on Thursday, March the 4th, 2021. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. So, guys, as you know, uh, I am no longer in journalism, but I was a reporter and editor uh, for 20 years, uh, some of that trying to cover economics. Mm. Um, but did you know there is another economics journalist called Paul Colgan? I didn't know that until... The hell you say? Go on. Yeah, there is. Interesting lead-in. There is. Uh, he's very accomplished. <laughs> uh, so he's in Dublin and he's on the TV there every day um, covering all the big stories. Yeah. Um, weirdly, we have uh, a bit more than a name and some work uh, in common. Uh, we did the same master's degree. Uh, I finished in 2000, I think, and he did the same thing the, the year after. And then we both ended up working in Sunday newspapers at the same time uh, in Dublin, um, he had to put his byline uh, as Paul T. Colgan uh, because I managed to get in a year ahead of him uh, into the Sunday papers. Anyway, after was, I the, was, was the T for terrific, just to, just to <laughs> yeah. really distinguish the two of you, because you were a bit mediocre, yeah? Um, uh, after I left for Sydney, he was able to drop the T, right? Uh, now he's in television, of course. Um, and because you can see all the news clips uh, online, I still find it a bit disconcerting when I see Paul Colgan reporting uh, on videos pr pretty much every day. Um, I have to say, he's much more dashing than me. Uh, um, uh, but just to also keep up the mystique a bit more, we have never actually been in, the, in, a, in a room at the same time together. Yeah, well... So you know where all this is going, don't you? What did you say his name was? Paul Colgan. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And he, oh, he joins right. us on the right. line now from Dublin. Paul Colgan, it's Paul Colgan here. Welcome to the BIP Show. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm great, mate. Um, good to finally talk to you. We've been threatening to do this for yeah. um, for some time. Yeah, you're to blame then. You're the guy, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's my, it's my fault. Um, look, uh, this is going to be really fun. Well, let's uh, chat some Colganomics, I suppose. Um, first need to yeah. check, do, do people call you Colgo? They do indeed, yeah. Only in Dublin, though. Right. Okay. Uh, it's been, yeah, not my my uh, my name uh, everywhere since I was um, uh, since I was about six years old. So, um, but look, Colgo. Um, uh, look, let me start with this. There's lots to talk about. Um, there genuinely is, I think, uh, some sort of some in interesting comparisons here: Australia and Ireland. Um, you know, two guys with the same name, sort of broadly similar interests uh, work-wise. Um, I've had very different um, experiences on the ground uh, in terms of um, the past 12 months. Uh, and in Ireland, it has been exceptionally bad. Um, but do you want to just start through the, with the virus there? Um, yeah. How has it been? Um, we've just gone through what we've been calling 
a third wave and a pretty bad one at that. Um, just before Christmas, we had been in a six-week lockdown from sort of midway through October to the end of November with the government's aim of having what it called a meaningful Christmas and uh, went into December with high hopes that uh, they could reopen big chunks of retail and hospitality for a period of time and perhaps keep case numbers at a reasonably low level. And as we all know now, uh, that didn't happen in Ireland and it didn't happen across much of Europe. And um, in early in the new year, we saw case numbers soar. We saw hospital admissions soar to, to, to levels that we simply hadn't experienced in the first wave. And we've seen quite a bit of death as well. Um, so the government is, is, as they say in Ireland, a bit shook. Um, and they have been preaching a cautious and conservative message, message ever since. Of course, we've been in lockdown since Christmas Eve. The pubs closed again on Christmas Eve, though the plan was to keep them open at least well into the new year. And uh, there's no end in sight, to be, to be quite honest. Some school kids went back to school on Monday, uh, younger kids, first four, four uh, year groups and the, the leaving cert, that's the exit exam in, in secondary school. They went back to school, but uh, everybody else is uh, working from home. Um, there's been no major reopening. Uh, there's a, a review due in early April, but it's not thought highly likely that we'll see a big chunk of the economy back on its feet anytime soon. So, um, gee, it's, um, in terms of the restrictions, is it two kilometres from your from your home? Oh, it's a f you can exercise within five kilometres mm. of your home, but household visits are banned either indoors or outdoors. So you can't meet people in their gardens, um, pubs fully shut, uh, restaurants fully shut. Um, yeah, it's it's in the first lockdown we had the two kilometre restriction, um, mm. but the government I think felt that that would be so much of an imposition at at this stage that people would perhaps they'd lose support for for lockdown in general and it would start to fray at the edges um so yeah in terms of its severity it's 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 practically as severe as the, as the very first lockdown was um can i ask you about the economic impact which i suppose is what you do for your day job um and i think just for context here um you know ireland's uh, was the Irish economy was still in some ways kind of just starting to recover from the GFC in the last few years um, because, you know, that the damage from that, uh, the way Ireland in particular was exposed was, um, uh, was significant. Um, uh, but there was a good recovery and it was all starting to look good. Um, so, so what's it like there now um, economically? Well, it's the strangest little economy that we have it's, it's almost like a two-part economy. Um, so you have the retail and hospitality and the tourism and the aviation, which is all devastated. And tourism is, is a crucial part of our economy. But then you look at the rest of it, and it's held up remarkably well. On Tuesday, they published their latest monthly exchequer returns for February, and it showed that income tax for the first two months of this year was ahead of income tax for the first two months of, of last year. Okay. So this is in a, in a what they call a level five lockdown. Income tax is actually increasing. So what has happened here is the people who have lost their jobs, the people who ha cannot go to work due to public health restrictions, tend to be people who didn't earn a lot of money in the beginning and didn't fall into the income tax net. Whereas the people who have retained their jobs, the people who can work from home, the people who earn most of the money continue to remain in employment. Also, you have government supports 
that kicked in at the end of last March and are still in place, the pandemic unemployment payment, the wage subsidy scheme, which covers some of uh, some of employees' wages paid directly to employers. So those things have really put a floor under the economy, but you have two parts to it. You have a huge chunk, about 25% of the working population. You can't go to work, you're out of work, but the rest are picking up the slack. Now, obviously, you can see the difference in terms of VAT, value-added tax, spending tax. It is, it's collapsed um, since last year. But corporation tax, as we all know, has held up very, very well in Ireland. Uh, the multinationals had a great year last year in terms of booking profits and paying tax, uh, and it increased last year. So in terms of Ireland's finances, the public finances, spending has rocketed in terms of health spending and social welfare. But the revenue side has held up remarkably well. So it reflects the fact that we have essentially two economies now. Last year was the best year on record for Irish exports. It was a record year for Irish exports, 160 billion euro worth. What were they? Yeah, 40% of them were medical and pharmaceutical. 40%. So um, now there's obviously a bit of jiggery-pokery in terms of of exports and in terms of how they're booked and all that. But... They're, they're, a lot of it is genuine exports. A lot of it is genuine um, medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and, uh, and what are the what are the major pharma- pharmaceutical and medical companies there? Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, all we those have, guys. We have twenty four of the twenty five largest in the world. So yeah, we have we have all those guys. Pfizer employs th- thousands of people here, um, and um, as somebody said, <laughs> we still have problems with our vaccination program. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah, the other um, big uh, uh, sector, though, for the for the uh, Irish economy is obviously tourism. Um, I mean, uh, are these businesses going to be able to come back? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, no, nobody knows. I suppose like we are hugely dependent still on Americans and and, and British tourists, um, English tourists come here, spend a lot of money on on food and drink. Um, and are possibly our most important um, tourism import. There's no sign of it coming back. The government has warned people that it's going to be another summer of internal tourism only. Um, there's been huge controversy over recent weeks about people coming into the country and, and what opposition politicians have called a, a very shoddy quarantine system. Um, people from specific countries are required to quarantine. Up until now, there, there was an expectation. People come in, they'd sign a declaration form, and they were expected to quarantine for two weeks. But there was no there was no system in place to ensure that they, that they did. You know, it, it, everybody knew that it was it was a bit of a a bit of a cod. So the big fear now is that variants. Um, well, we already have the British variant here, the the, the more transmissible of the COVID um, variants. Um, Public health experts assume, I think, that it, it makes up for the vast majority of cases here at the minute. So there's a fear that we just can't open up until a huge section of the of the population is inoculated and that we're assured that the vaccines work against these new variants um, 
and the Christmas the Christmas experience was a chastening one for governments, so they're they're not taking any chances. They have boosted their quarantine system, though it is subject to, to still quite severe criticism that they're not going nearly far far enough. The problem is we're in a common travel area with with the UK, and um, we have a, an open land border with the north of Ireland, which is obviously um, within the UK. So this complicates everything. Um, but I think there's a hope that um, we're seeing signs in in the likes of Israel, and we're seeing signs in in the north of Ireland, where one third of adults have received a vaccine because it's, it's part of the UK vaccination program, that it is having an impact. And perhaps at some stage this year, the country can at least tentatively reopen for tourism. And that would obviously give a boost to um, the hospitality sector. Well, there's the there's the sticky point about it too. And, and it was only a matter of time until we raised the issue of Brexit. And so mm-hmm. myself, a, a while ago, when Brexit sort of kicked in, I sort of put the whole thing in basket case area and not a place that I, that I really wanted to try and understand and invest and I started to get it and mm. I started to figure out what was going on. So, uh, do, do you want to, just for us, especially with regards to the reopening trade or at least the vaccination trade and with mind that there's all, always things that are going on just literally just in the last 24 hours, but uh, do, yeah. do you want to talk, just give us a high-level summary if, if it's possible of how Britain leaving the EU has actually affected Ireland? Um. At the minute, it's sort of high-level political um, controversy and, and conflict. Uh, we have the British over the past 24 hours saying that they're going to um, extend what they call the grace periods so that paper, certain paperwork wouldn't be required for goods crossing the Irish Sea. Obviously, the European Union aren't happy. They believe they weren't informed about it and they're threatening legal action this morning. But in terms of the immediate impact on trade, it has been seen with online trade. Um, online shopping, for example, people were waiting five or six weeks at the start of the year to receive their Amazon packages, much of which are routed through through Britain. Um, but in terms of the direct economic impact, I don't think you're going to see that until later in the year. The British, as part of the deal, are, are due to implement further checks in April and July on goods crossing the RC from Ireland to Britain. Um, but you... Uh, it's, it's fair to say there has been additional costs and there's been additional red tape and, and non-tariff barriers that Irish importers and exporters have already had to start dealing with. But the big fear, obviously, last year was that we we're going to have a cliff edge, no deal Brexit, um, trading on WTO terms. That was all avoided. And it, But it's very difficult to discern the macro impact on Ireland just yet because of COVID. COVID shrouds everything. Uh, it's, it's it's it makes it impenetrable at the minute, but certainly there's additional costs. Things are going to become more expensive in Ireland as a direct result of Brexit. Food costs. We import huge amounts of of food and retail items from from Britain. Um, you've seen ferry routes. Um, traditionally, Holyhead to Dublin was 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 the main route between. Um, Ireland and Britain, and, and that has fallen away dramatically. You've seen hauliers, instead of using what they call the British land bridge between Europe and Ireland to get goods to Ireland and out of Ireland, they're now circumventing the island of Britain. They're, they're taking ferries directly from Ross Lair to Cherbourg, uh, from Ross Lair to the European continent. Uh, so you've seen a, a dramatic shift in the way trade is being conducted. Um, can I ask... Um about Anglo-Irish relations, maybe maybe in, instead of like at the government level, at the community level, because probably one of the big things of our lifetime 
you know, apart from uh, uh, sharing uh, uh, um, names, we also share roughly sort of the same age and sort of um, uh, grew up, you know, watching the same uh, sort of news unfold. Um, and one of the big trends in that has been this sort of, um, uh, you know, very big sort of integration, uh, a lot of friendliness uh, uh, between uh, English and Irish people developing uh, in that time compared to when we were very, very small, I suppose. Um, what, how has the way that um, uh, the trajectory of what's happened with Brexit uh, and now COVID, how has that uh, um, affected um, the community mood in Ireland about, about the English? Um. Well, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of Irish people, but I, I certainly think they've, they found the elevation of, of Boris Johnson in the middle of all this a little surprising and baffling. Um, we haven't really That's seen the sort of, yeah, uh, we haven't really seen the sort of populism in Ireland that we've seen in the US and, and in Britain over recent years. Obviously, Brexit is wrapped up in all of that. Um I think people just breathed a huge sigh of relief that a, a no-deal Brexit was avoided. And I think in, in sort of the collective wisdom, there was an assumption that it wouldn't happen, that it, there was a bit of um, gamesmanship and a bit of uh, uh, gambling going on with regards to what the British government strategy was. So it's hard to capture what Irish people think of British people. But like, but as, as we were just discussing, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of millions of British people come here every year to, on their holidays, you know, it's, um, mm. and I imagine they will do so again. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's any sort of new Cold War between Ireland and Britain. Certainly in the North, Brexit has been hugely damaging to, to relations uh, between the two communities. Um, a majority of people in the North of Ireland did not want to leave the European Union. They voted against it. Um, and nationalists, Irish nationalists in the north um, are almost entirely opposed to the idea of Brexit, yet they're having to get on with it. They lost their um, their status within the European Union. However, the deal does grant the north of Ireland this sort of unique status. It, it, in terms of goods trade, it finds itself within the EU single market. Well, Still. I, yeah, uh, Paul, in your... Colgo, whatever. No, I'm going to call you Paul, sorry. Uh, the uh, uh, In your professional... Opinion: What does the end play the tape to the end? What does the end game actually look like with regards to the relationship? Um, obviously, there's been huge commentary about the possibility of a united Ireland further down the line. Um, I grew up in the north, and 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 uh, I understand the um, the two sides of it. Um, but certainly, if you look at opinion poll data over recent years, certainly among younger people, there is a um, more of a willingness to consider it and, and perhaps voice support for it where there wasn't 20, 30 years ago. You always have the old issue of the demographics in the north of Ireland, um, the notion that Catholics are outbreeding Protestants, which isn't isn't true anymore, obviously, but there had been a tendency for a while for, for Protestant kids or Unionist kids to, to leave and, and to, to go to England or whatever, um, whereas uh, nationalists were more likely to stay. So there's the question of whether the demographics get there anyway, regardless of the of the political um, impetus. But certainly there's a section, it's hard to quantify, of people who would either call themselves sort of non-partisan or soft unionists who have certainly during the Brexit debate spoken about a new Ireland um, 
and that is something that you're, you're going to have to watch. But the, the Irish government has set up a shared island unit in some ways to, to I suppose, um, fend off claims by Sinn Féin that they want a, a border poll as soon as is possible. Um, the British Secretary of State is obliged to call a border poll, a vote, a referendum on a United Ireland if he believes or he or she believes there is a, um, a majority for it. So I don't think it's just around the corner, but certainly it is something people are talking more and more about, the possibility of of a United Ireland and the United Ireland that would find itself north and south back within the European Union proper. Um, are there upsides to the Brexit thing? I think one of the interesting things is that uh, fascinates me that um, Ireland is the only native English-speaking uh, member of the European Union now. Um, and mm-hmm. there was this chat about, like, well, when um, London, big financial centre, um, exits the EU, that there was, you know, that um, a lot of the banks and ancillary services uh, might set up shop in Dublin. Was um, Has that happened? Uh, not to any great extent. Um, like, it, it's the idea that the loss... The losses of the city of London would become the winds of, of Dublin. Yeah, there was certain there was a certain amount of, of movement, but in terms of driving employment, it's it, it, it's it's a drop in the ocean. Um, how, okay, how much of that was preemptive? So, I mean, you know, there was movement made, and the same in Amsterdam and various other uh, European centres. Like, there was a chunk that was preemptive. So, you know, before the deal or, or whatever they perceived it to be, people moved, companies moved, banks moved, and whatever else. Now, at the moment, there's, there's sort of a stalemate, not least of which because of COVID and a reticence to get physically moving or whatever else. But do you perceive that going forward, once things, in inverted commas, normalise, there won't be, you know, a, a continued shift or, or there will be a continued shift? How do you see that? Well, I, th- I think what the government is, 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 is bargaining on is a boost to perhaps foreign direct investment. Um, you'll hear it talk about the fact that, as, as Paul was saying, um, you know, we're not an English-speaking member of the European Union and foreign firms looking to trade into the European Union presumably um, look at the fact that we've a native English-speaking population, working population, and that, and that gives you... Um, that gives you an edge. Um, and we have a lot of FDI here. We have a lot of big U.S. multinationals. And I think the hope is that, yes, we will win some of those investments that would have otherwise gone to to, to Britain or to London. Um, but time and again, the economic analysis that the government provides, the, the economic analysis provided by all the main think tanks here, provided by the central bank, in all the Brexit scenarios, there's a hit to Irish GDP, whatever way you look at it, including this current relatively benign outcome that we've arrived at. There will be an inevitable impact on the Irish economy, and it's going to be an adverse one, despite whatever small benefits may, may flow our way. Uh, one of the things, obviously, that helps uh, Ireland's economy uh, um, has been the tech companies. So uh, I guess... Lots of uh, smart remarks about uh, about this, as you can imagine. Uh, you get mm-hmm. people occasionally saying, uh, you know, the Irish economy is just built on, you know, tech, com- tech companies rorting, you know, or um, which is an Australianism for uh, um, being on the take, I suppose. Um, uh, their taxes and, you know, just using Ireland as a tax haven. Um, 
where is this? Because I think one of the big um, things that's been happening in, um, globally is with regulators and governments starting to fix their gaze steadily on um, on uh, uh, big firms like Google, uh, Apple, and Facebook, which all have presences in Dublin. Um, so, so where's that up to? Um, well, we're watching the OECD process. Um, the arrival of Biden in Washington has, I suppose, assuaged some concerns there was in Dublin that uh, the US ad- administration would either walk away from the talks or wouldn't engage properly with them. There, there's a perception now that the Biden team will engage properly and that that is a good thing from an Irish point of view because it keeps everybody inside the tent. They don't want members of the EU running off like France and introducing digital taxes and all that sort of thing. So there is an expectation now that perhaps whatever regime replaces the one we had will be uh, won't be as, as severe in terms of its impact on Ireland's corporation tax structure. But the notion that Ireland is a pure tax haven is, is, is not true. Um, we pay, you know, for a fact, we pay a lot of tax in this country. Um, <laughs> and uh, the OECD has repeatedly praised us for the pro- progressivity of our income tax system. Um, you know, you hear a lot of talk in Ireland about the so-called squeezed middle um, of workers who, who do pay a considerable amount of tax. Employers don't pay a huge amount of tax. And, and that's an issue that... Um, compared to other European countries. And that's an issue that will be revisited over the coming years. Um, But in terms of corporation tax, we know we're going to lose revenue over the coming years. It's been priced into profiles in terms of the public finances. There's going to be a hit there. Um, But when people criticise Ireland for the strategy they've pursued, um, I think, look, we're a small country. Um, We've been battered down through the, the decades and centuries. Uh, we didn't have a, an indigenous manufacturing base. Um, we saw a huge chunk of our population emigrate to other countries. Uh, we had the troubles and all of that. So um, taking advantage of international tax treaties and laws to you know create employment, um, I don't think it's, it's the greatest sin in the world. But Ireland isn't a tax haven. As, some, as somebody said, it's, it's a it's a country that has some of the characteristics of a tax. So, shall we <laughs> how, 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 much, how, much, how much of your tax incentive lunch uh, have you found that the uh, the Netherlands has cut, as it were? Have you, have you, have you seen much competition on that front? Um, I, I can't honestly say we have. It's not something that's uh, it's really on the radar at the moment. It, perhaps you've got you've got more of an insight into that. Like, what, what are you seeing from your inspiration? Your perspective? Well, I, I suppose, it, it, I mean, I've only been living here a couple of years and, and frankly haven't really delved too, too far into the um, corporate tax incentive side of things. But my understanding always has been that for, at least for the last probably five or so years that there has been a fairly significant rivalry between the Netherlands and Ireland in terms of the various incentives issued so as to, you know, domicile at least the European arm of the Googles, the Facebooks, the, the the various big tech multinationals. So I was just wondering whether there was a you know a pronounced feeling, at least on the Irish side, of whether uh, you know lunch had been cut, as it were. Um, it's, it's certainly not um, something that um, is spoken about or, or, or comes up at all. Uh, I would suggest the, the big um, US tech companies have a very firmly established footprint in Ireland. Um, if you if you go into into Dublin down Barrow Street, Google 
practically owns 90% of an entire street in, in Dublin now with plans to, to, to build further. Facebook's just around the corner. Uh, likewise, is, is expanding its operations um, and is planning to take on thousands of extra staff. So I don't think there's a, a fear within um, Ireland that there that we're about to lose any of these big U.S. tech companies. Um, Google has a street in Dublin now. Uh, it's called Barrow Street, this old Dublin street. Google now practically owns 90% of it. They have plans to build to build further, hire more people. Facebook is just around the corner. Uh, it, it plans to do the same. It's taken on a, on a brand new uh, site and, and plans to hire thousands of people. So... There's no concern, immediate concern anyway, that Ireland is about to lose these big uh, tech companies or lose these big European headquarters anytime soon. Do, do they tend to hire um, like Irish people or like are the, the type of workers that they're looking for? Are they in Ireland or they need to, do they need to get them from elsewhere? Oh, they certainly need to import them. That's, that's, uh, that's the case. Now, certainly there's lots of Irish people who do work for, for Google and Facebook and so on. But there, to, to make up the additional... Um, requirements they certainly do have to to bring workers here one of the big concerns over recent years had been house prices and and, um, and the price of rent which has skyrocketed over the past five or six years and there was concerns that from a foreign direct investment point of view that was going to catch up and with us and bite us in, in the behind because workers were finding it increasingly difficult to to locate here the, the high cost of rent and for a period of time and they and they still talk about it, the possibility that the tech companies themselves will um, will either build or, or, or rent um, properties en masse to oh, facilitate wow. really? to facilitate uh, accommodation for these workers. But then COVID landed in the middle of it. It was only, right. I was only reminiscing about this day, or sorry, yesterday last year was the day Google Ireland sent everybody home because one of their workers came in with flu-like symptoms. So they've all been working from home. There was concerns, I think, within the tech companies that a lot of workers were leaving the country to work from home. Uh, and it was going to be difficult to get them back. Um, so that's all has to pan out as well once uh, once uh, COVID is dealt with, whether um, they can get all those people back onto terra firma or whether they leave them where they are. Um, well, okay, so, okay, so, so it's, it's, it's late on a Thursday, but early on a Thursday there. So maybe we... Let's let's try and talk it up because Paul, we've talked about vaccine, not yeah, not amazing. EU breakup, not amazing. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like talking to my old relatives. But anyway, but the uh, the okay, so, uh, and then you've got oh, it's all good. It's all the tech, good. Yeah, the, the tech regulatory changes. That's not amazing. Housing prices up, food prices up. Uh, can you give us some good news, mate? Where's the where's the upside? Come on. Well, no, the, <laughs> the economy's still ticking along. If you want to look at the GDP numbers, of course, you know, as Paul Krugman pointed out. Leprechaun economics and all that, but uh, no, I think there's a sense that Ireland can bounce back quite well because, as we discussed earlier, you know all those workers who are working from home, you know they're still working. Um, we're still exporting. Um, you know the, the sky didn't fall in when Brexit happened, and I think there's a expectation that they'll be muddling through through with regards to Brexit. So I, I, I think people feel that once vaccinations happen and kick in, that we will get back to something approaching a, um, not necessarily a full economy. We won't, we won't, I was going to say normality, but it won't be normal. I don't think for a while. And unemployment will, we imagine stay stubbornly high for a, a period of time afterwards. But I think once we get a year 
or 18 months clear from the very worst of COVID that we'll be back to something approaching full employment. Um, because the Irish economy had been in great shape going into this. And that was one of the reasons why we fared so well. Um, and um, so I don't, I don't think there's a concern that Ireland is into another lost decade, having just come out of a lost decade. Yeah, um, certainly good to hear. And I know... Um Getting at least some of the kids back to school uh, will be a huge relief to a lot of parents, you know, um, uh, mm. and uh, hopefully that all um, comes together pretty quickly um, uh, in terms of getting everybody else back. What's the schedule there? Um, are they thinking for for the rest of them? It's, it's a phased um, it's a phased return. I think it's the fifteenth of March. Some extra classes are going to go back, but they're, they're so terrified of the effects of this uh, British variant because they simply don't have the data on how well it transmits, certainly in, in, in school settings, um, that they want to take it slowly. Um, that Their big fear is that they have to reverse course at some point, so they don't want to have to do anything that they can't, um, that they have to go back on. Because yeah. so, uh, open the, up the, and lock down, open up low, just, it's just devastating, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, um, and like you, you, I, I don't know if you heard, there, there was a bit of a kerfuffle on Grafton Street, the main shopping thoroughfare in Dublin on Saturday, where um, protesters gathered and clashed with with Gordy, um ostensibly protesting lockdown measures, though there were certainly elements of the far right were involved um, and were I have used this issue to agitate around, but there's a concern that this really has to be the last big lockdown because people. Another one might break them. Um, oh, I think there it's, was. It's, oh, I can't believe yeah. there's a far right uh, movement in Ireland. That's uh, well, a movement. I don't know. I don't know. Members. They 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 don't have any. Rabble. They don't have a large membership. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they don't have a large membership or structure as such. Um, and um, I suspect if or for COVID, they'd be agitating around something else. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so that that's not a major concern, but that is just something that's gnawing at the, at the edges, you know, these sort of things, you know, it, it, the mood is, 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 is a bit bleak still, yeah. though improving, it has to be said, um, you know, it depends on the vaccination program. Um, we're looking at the Brits and we're looking at the Americans flying ahead of us and the European Union vaccination program lagging well behind. Um, but if that catches up sometime soon, then then the picture changes quite quickly. Uh, this has been an absolutely fascinating chat. Uh, I, I know it's been um, something that uh, we've been talking about doing for, for some time on and off. Um, so it's been really good to put it together and, and just uh, yeah. here, because I know um, uh, like the um, uh, the Irish economy, is, um, there's lots of very weird and interesting uh, uh, elements to it. Um, and to hear in detail um, from uh, somebody with your level of expertise has been really Really fascinating. Um, and I think, um, so thank you um, so much, Colgo. No, no, Good on you. Um, I think one of the other things um, that before we go, we talked about all the, you know, you know, uh, you know same name, uh, went to this, did the same postgrad, uh, you know, worked on the newspapers, <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, but um, uh, also we both played in tribute bands. Um <laughs> which, which I have which, got some Irish checks here. Which, go ahead. What was uh, which uh, you played in a tribute tribute band, Paul? 
I did, yeah. Well, I played in several, along with lots of uh, highly excellent original acts. Um, but um, no, I briefly played in a, AC, a joint ACDC Black Sabbath tribute act. So the first half would be ACDC called Dirty Deeds, where I'd be Malcolm, Malcolm Young, mm. rhythm guitarist. Mm. And then we'd return as Nativity in Black, who were Black Sabbath, and I'd be Tony Iommi without, without the, the handlebar moustache. Um, That's hilarious. Helga, your 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 tribute band. I was in a Zeppelin tribute band. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, it was the guitar player. Um, it was called Sir Orfeo, and uh, we did um, yeah Zeppelin numbers and mixed with some very Zeppelin influenced originals. I got nothing to say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing to add. Nothing yeah. to add. I've, I've got even less. Yeah. <laughs> if, if we ever find the other Ken Vexler, that's going to be interesting to see what sort of bands that they played in. And uh, I've, never, I've never met <sighs> a Jack. They broke them all. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so I tell you what, um, Paul, um, look, it's uh, yeah. been really great to, to finally sit down and, and have a proper chat with you, having, you know, followed your career, <laughs> um, you know, uh, over the years. Um, it's been awesome. And um, I tell you what, the, no next, um, the next time we, we, we might do this again. Um, uh, uh, sure. uh, over the air at some, at some point, um, but certainly um, uh, I look forward to the day when we can, uh, when I can buy Paul Colgan a pint. Christoph, looking forward to it. It'll be great. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're there individually at uh, Colgo. It's at Colgo. That's for me. And then at Paul Colgan is... Uh, Just follow them both. It's yeah, the same yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Vexler. Um, uh, and uh, don't forget to hit subscribe to the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everybody. Uh, the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. James Whelan, thank you. Thank you very much. A whole week to not talking about bond yields. It's, yeah, yeah, uh, I know. Refreshing. I'll have to get back to it next well week. Well done. Yeah, good week, though. I know. And uh, yeah, Ken, I might get back to calling the um, bond sell-off a tantrum next week, maybe. <laughs> D- don't you dare, Colgo, if you value any le- anything left in your life. Anyway, but it's been great. Thank you both, Colgos. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.